Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight, and thank you for today. Um, such beautiful weather. Pray that we have enjoyed it rightly. I pray that tonight as we look at Genesis 29, that you would let us see from it what you would have us to see from it, that we would grow in our knowledge and understanding of you, which in a like manner produces a better understanding of our state and how much we need you. So Lord, we pray that you would guide our time, equip us, pray that our, uh, we'd truly be transformed by the renewal of our minds tonight, as your word calls us to it. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Turn to Genesis 29. Tonight's study starts off really beautiful and kind of takes a Jerry Springer turn about halfway through and gets weird. So a little recap from last week. Genesis 28, we're in 29 tonight, but from last week, Genesis 28, what, uh, what has Jacob's... What were some of his firsts that he experienced in chapter 28? Jacob had a few firsts in chapter 28. Huh? Yeah, the rock for a pillow. That was a first. He probably had a feathered pillow at home. Yeah. He was soft, yeah. Rock for a pillow. What were some other firsts? Yeah, he's becoming a big boy. Yeah, he's becoming a 70 years old. He's a big boy, okay? Yeah. Well, some of them, you just got to do that. <laughs> huh? He saw God. That's a big deal. Yeah, what's, what's, what's the bigger deal? That the 70-year-old finally left the house or that God showed up? Yeah, pretty cool. Okay. What does Jacob now know about God after having seen God? What does he now know? That there is a God. That's, that's huge. He's not just hearing about God anymore by way of what God did with Abraham or what God did with Isaac. But uh, he, he knows now uh, um, that there is a God. He has talked to him. What else does he know about God? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this confirmation that happens at the beginning of chapter 28. Isaac repeats the blessing, which is good because now when Jacob looks back at the blessing, he doesn't have to be filled with um, the heartache of knowing that he schemed his old blinding father out of it, but that in fact it was done in faith because God interceded. Um, and so it, it's actually a beautiful thing. And then God shows up as real, like, if you need any more confirmation of the blessing, how about God shows up and reiterates it again? So that's a big deal. What else? Yeah, that, the promise that God gives. God says, I am with you, and I will not leave you, and I will see to it that everything that I have set in order will happen. I'll accomplish all my purpose. And so Jacob is in a different situation now than he was in the beginning of 28. In the beginning of chapter 28, Jacob is a sissy. Jacob is a mama's boy. Jacob is 70 year old, years old living at home. Jacob is not very bold. Jacob is timid in, in some sense, but he's also a bit of a schemer and self-serving. And here we see some change in Jacob. He finally leaves home, and now he has a relationship with the Lord because who, who initiated the conversation between God and Jacob? God. That's a really important point for us to, to not lose sight of. So God is with him and will keep him wherever he, uh, where he goes. 
Um, he knows God's promises now, all the things that God said about the offspring and the land. Those are God's promises. He knows those firsthand now. And then he also, there's a, a piece of uncertainty that's taken away. There's still uncertainty. There's uncertainty in the life of every believer. But what's certain is that the journey leads to God. What happens along the way, we're not sure. But what's certain is that the journey leads to God. And we know that Jacob's just not, he's not really trying his hand in a world of uncertainty at this point. It's not like, well, I'm out of the house. I have no idea what's going on. God says, no, this is what's going on. I am the Lord your God. I'm the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, the land on which you lie. Uh, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Behold, I'm with you. I'll keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will, never, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. So that Jacob's ladder vision that many songs and such have been written about is a big deal. Because Jacob now knows um, I have a relationship with God and I have a purpose in my life that... Um, is certain because of what God has done outside of me. And so it's a new, new season for Jacob. How do we know that Jacob is becoming wiser? What does he do when he wakes up? It says, And I did not know it, and he was what? And he was afraid. And what's the link between that fear and wisdom? Yeah, exactly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. And so we know that Jacob is becoming wiser because when he wakes up from that dream, he doesn't necessarily say, I must be awesome. God showed me this ladder, which is Jesus and angels were descending and ascending. I must really be the man. He wakes up and he, it says, um, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob, in a good way, is not quite as self-serving as he may have been before. And you see him saying, wow, I, I fear the Lord. And we know that Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Jacob is growing up, becoming wise, and it's good. What's the difference between a memorial and an idol from last, week, last week's study? An idol is something that takes the place of God, not in a good way, like... It doesn't actually take the place of God. It takes the place of God in the mindset of the one worshiping the idol. But it takes the place of God in that sense as opposed to a memorial. What does the memorial do in regards to God? Yeah, the memorial points to God. And so uh, we talked about a lot of different kind of memorials there can be, but there's a difference between a memorial and an idol, and it's important to understand those because we don't want Jacob to, when he set up the pillar and poured the oil on top of it, and it's this place, and the place is sacred. The place was sacred not because Jacob said it was sacred, but because God was present. Anything where God shows up, that's sacred. And uh, it's not an idol, it's a memorial because it points to God, not Jacob or anything else. It points to the fact that God is sovereign, God keeps his promises, and he's very good to his people. What was revealed about Jacob and his vow to God? At the end of, of chapter 28, Jacob makes a vow to God, and he starts it with a, an interesting word. What word does he start it with? If. That's not a good way to make a vow to the Lord. An if-then conditional statement, like a, the sale of a car or something, uh, that's not good. So what's revealed to, uh, about him in that? We know that's not a good way to do it, but what does it reveal about his character and kind of where he's at in his journey? Yeah, he's still somewhat a wimp, a little, little, little young, immature. Yeah, he has not arrived. Yeah, has anyone? No. Yeah, we're all still in this process of sanctification. 
There's no time where any of us, while we still have a borrowed breath on earth, can just jump ahead and say, well, I'm sanctified. Uh, I'm practically glorified. Uh, we are in a process of sanctification, some of us at different points. Remember, I showed the video last week of Ella sharing her version of the gospel where Jesus worked hard, died on the cross, the disciples were sad. Then someone dropped a coin in the bat's mouth in the spooky forest. There were lions and tigers. Jesus wasn't scared. He's mighty. And he went to the spooky forest. It was like a train wreck. But what you do in those situations is don't just disregard the person who's immature in their faith as, as, uh, as it being a, a worthless comment or, or a worthless circumstance. You want to encourage in the truth and help to explain the things that aren't quite right. So I would sit with Ella and say, well, sweetheart, there, there was no coin. There was no bat. There was no spooky forest. This is really what happened. But the part about Jesus dying on the cross and working hard and he's mighty, yeah, those are good points. And so you encourage in the truth. But it, it teaches us patience. God doesn't say, I showed you Jacob, I showed you the ladder, Jacob. That's all you got? An if-then statement? God doesn't do that. And he shows a lot of patience. But don't count the patience. Um, well, the patience is to lead us to repentance, is what another piece of Scripture says, which we'll get to. Uh, so Genesis 29 is where we're at. That's where we land. And I'm going to read it out loud. Uh, it's really beautiful first half of the chapter and a little weird in some points, and then by the end, it's just completely weird and very Springer. So Genesis 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey. I mean, he just had this encounter with the Lord, and it's awesome, and it's sweet, and it's, it's a very deeply spiritual, life-changing deal, and he goes on this journey. So this journey is, is, is a good part of this process. He goes on this journey and came to the land of the people of the east, as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And be from the house of Bethuel, where he was told to go by his mom and dad. They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep, exclamation point. He said, behold, it is still high day. It's not uh, time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go uh, pasture them. But they said, uh, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, sound familiar? Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Weird, right? Um, I think verse 11 is weird. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. <laughs> Daddy! Um, verse 13. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to this house. Does it sound familiar? To his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. It's a funny transition too. 
What should your wages be? Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then, <laughs> then Jacob said to Laban, then, seven years are over, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. Yes, that is what it sounds like. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Bum, bum, bum. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave uh, his female servant Bilhah uh, to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son and called his name Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. She called his name Simeon. And she conceived and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I'll praise the Lord. <laughs> Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Like I said, it's beautiful on the front. The middle gets a little weird. Then it takes a turn for the crazy. Turn back to verse 1. Go through this verse at a time. Verses 1 through 3. Jacob went on his journey, came to the land of the east. As he looked, he saw all of these details seem fairly insignificant. It seems superfluous. To have all these weird details. This is an important journey. And you're talking about a well and the sheep and the rock and how it all works. And it seems kind of like, what's the point? I thought we were about to get into the, this journey. You just had this encounter with God and he's moving forward. And there's all this stuff about this well and the, the, the water and the rock and the shepherds. And it's weird. And so as he looked, he saw a well in the field. And behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of the well, the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large. It was a large stone. Don't forget, it was a large stone. It seems silly to include it, but it's important. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob has been engaged by the living God, and he's on his journey with a, a new pep in his step. He knows things now that he didn't know before. Knowing this could make these verses seem superfluous, anticlimactic, but when we study the Word, it's important um, spending most of our time observing. When we study God's Word, it's really important to observe and observe and observe. And then we you think you've observed all that there is to observe, you observe some more and look at it and pay attention to all the details that are included. Because remember, even because when I get to chapter 29, I'm thinking, 
That's a lot of details about sheep and water and rocks. And this is about people. But when I get here, I've got to remember 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God. God didn't need to just fill some time and include some extra words to make the book a little longer. Um, and so they're there for a reason. So we observe and we observe and we observe and then we interpret and the better, the more we observe, the better the interpretation we have and the better the interpretation, the, the better the interpretation is that we come to, the more um, clear and precise the application will be in our lives. So we look at it, say, what's there, what's there, what's there? Then finally get to the point where we say, what does this mean? And then you say, okay, so what do we do with this now that we know what it means? That's Howard Hendricks' kind of basic outline of how he does it in his book, Living by the Book, on how to study the Bible. It's a really good book on how to uh, study. So anyway, we're looking at this and we're saying, why is it here? Why is this part of God's breathed out word? Um, and oftentimes what we'll have to do, like what we're going to do in these few verses, is just make a note of what's there. I can't tell what its significance is at first. I'm going to make a note of what's there, and then we'll keep reading. And don't lose sight of that note that we made to try and understand why it's there. And just for side note, the stone kept debris out of the well, and it kept sheep from falling in the well, and it kept people from falling into the well. Imagine kind of a big watering hole where the sheep could gather and there's a big stone and it needs to be rolled away and then that reveals the water in the ground. That's kind of what you got to picture. And it just keeps junk out of it. It's drinking water and people out of it because that's bad. Verses 4 through 6. Jacob said to them, my brothers, where do you come from? They said, we are from Haran. He said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter is coming with the sheep. What a coincidence that Jacob stumbled in the middle of, what is it, Mesopotamia at this point? Jacob stumbled upon the right flock and shepherds. What a coincidence. Believers in a sovereign God don't believe in mere coincidence. If you believe that God is sovereign, that all is under his control and in his power, uh, coincidence is, is an affront to God. Um, why did Jacob find these guys? God brought them to, yeah, he, God said, I will be with you and I, will, uh, I won't leave you until I've done what I promised you. What does Jacob need right now to fulfill the promises of God? A wife, step one. Children, step two. And it can't be what kind of wife? Better not be one of those Canaanite women. That's right. So he found them because uh, God brought them to him. In the same way that we asked previous, uh, in chapter 28, do we believe God still changes people like this? Like, do you believe that God can change people the way that he changed Isaac in the middle of chapter 27? We also have to believe, ask the question, do we believe God still guides and directs his people like this? God guides and directs his people very specifically all the time. He's not vague and aloof and distant. An example, I was watching the news this week. There was a, have you all heard about the little girl in the swamp? a pretty amazing story. She's in the swamp for four days. They've got like marines out there and all these like specialists out there. And you know who ends up finding her? A guy from her church is out there with a GPS unit by himself. And the 911 call is crazy. It's like, I've got her. She's here. And, and they're like, who's the girl? Do you actually have her? And he's like, yeah, I can give you my GPS coordinates on my cell phone, I think. And, and he's like, I prayed and God led me here. And it's a pretty, pretty crazy story, right? 
Now, the cynic in me wants to say, whatever, way to over-spiritualize it. You know, there's a bunch of people in the swamp. That... God guides people like that. God answers prayer like that. It's very real. The cynic in me, when I heard that story, I was like, ah, whatever. You're probably some weirdo specialist who had a plan. You probably took the girl and put her somewhere and then went, I mean, the, don't, don't be cynical. Uh, so she was found in the swamp after four days by a member of her church who was out looking and prayer walking. That's pretty awesome. Psalm 9, 1 through 2, we talked about this before. Recount all of the wonderful deeds of the Lord. When we dismiss happenings as coincidence, we may actually be passing over an opportunity to recount God's deeds. If you, oh, that's weird. What a coincidence. Oh, I was praying about that this morning. It's so funny you called. It's not coincidence. God still guides people and moves them along and tells them, turn here. Don't go that way. Um, we, uh, we could have done it uh, when we read this passage. It'd be easy to, to read this passage and say, huh, that's crazy. Jacob just stumbled upon the right people. Huh. And just dismiss it and keep moving. But if we pay close attention to the fact that God is very active in the lives of his children, we'll see more of his hand at work, which allows us to recount his wonderful deeds more robustly and fully. Um, there must be a sober-minded balance between rightly attributing uh, God's deeds to him and over-spiritualizing everything. Okay, because you can go to the other extreme too. There's, there's rightly attributing God's deeds to him and over-spiritualizing everything to where everyone around you wants to choke you and tell you to quit talking uh, because you're over-spiritualizing everything. Um, because, uh, well, the question, why can we attribute this to God without being over-spiritualizing of everything? Because this shows us how to keep the balance between the two. Why can we attribute it as God leading him here? God said he's going to do it. That's key. That's what keeps you from over-spiritualizing everything. Um, what I mean is uh, because God promised Jacob that he would keep him and be with him until all of his promises were fulfilled, the difference between attributing things to God's doing and over-spiritualizing something that may have nothing to do with God is, is it linked to one of God's promises? That, Exactly. Exactly. So there's specifics that God shares, and we know that we're not over-spiritualizing something when you can link it to God. Um, there must be a promise there uh, that God has made. There's a lot. We'll probably talk more about that later, especially with all the stuff going on in this chapter. Uh, also, what will uh, this cause us to look for in those times where it feels like we're completely lacking guidance, insight, and direction? This passage is to serve as a reminder to us. What is it reminding us of in the times where we feel like we're in the wilderness, wandering by ourselves, lonely with no real direction? God still blank. He still works. He still guides. He still directs. He still is very active, and we've got to trust him. God's divine intercession is very real. Look at verses 7 through 8. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together, water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then, the water, then we water the sheep. This just seems like nine verses of like, okay, great. Can we quit talking about watering the stinking sheep? I don't understand why it's all there. Again, seemingly superfluous details for now. The general point is that the stone must be rolled back from the well so that the sheep 
can be watered. Does everybody get that? So if the stones not roll back, what, hap- what can happen? There's no water, and then the sheep can't drink. Okay, it's very important. Don't miss the details, though. Note them, be mindful of them as you continue to read. Look at verses 9 through 10. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Now the previous details that were shared uh, of a large stone needing to be rolled back so that the sheep could be watered, and if it's not, they can't be watered, now it makes sense. And we'll get to that in a minute. I promise it makes sense. First, consider the phrase, while he was still speaking. Does this remind you of anything? You're sitting there making a plan with the shepherds. Eleazar, yeah, Ah, two gold stars for you. It's awesome. Eleazar, while he was still speaking, this should remind us of Eleazar. In the same way that God was at work, even before Abraham's servant Eleazar was done praying, remember, who was Eleazar, Abraham's servant, going to find a wife for who? Isaac, and ended up finding at the, you see that? Similar stories. Here Jacob is making a plan with the shepherds, and while he was still speaking, enter hot Rachel. Rachel was a hot shepherdess. That's what we know. Um, this reminds us of that point that, was, that we saw in the previous chapters, that uh, God knows our deepest needs before we even voice them. Before we're even finished praying, before we're even finished talking the plan out, God has been causing things to happen and movement to be going on that works for the good of his people, for the kingdom good of his people, as Morris commented on a couple weeks ago. It's a really important point, not just so you feel happy and more fulfilled, but for kingdom good. And so uh, God is always at work, and here Rachel, uh, the shepherdess, shows up. This is unique, the fact that she was a shepherdess. Shepherding was not the most prestigious practice. Um, it was often dirty and reviling, actually. And it's interesting because in Genesis 46, 34, we're not there yet, but Joseph is talking about, you know, how he's going to bring his family in and where he's going to put his family, and there's a lot of movement there. But it's interesting because jo- uh, Joseph notes that to the Egyptians, which the Egyptians will come into play here in about the next 20 chapters, 15 chapters, the Egyptians, um, to the Egyptians, every shepherd is an abomination. So it's interesting that she's a shepherdess. To the Egyptians, every shepherd is an abomination. That's fairly ironic because Jesus was the what? The good shepherd. Isn't ironic that an evil nation would despise shepherds and Jesus, an evil yet powerful nation, would despise shepherds as uh, an abomination and Jesus would show up as the good shepherd. And you're called to shepherd your families. And here, they're shepherding a flock. And he talks to the shepherds. And it's just interesting and ironic. And you could write a book about it. We know that Laban's family has money, right? Laban's not a poor guy. The family has money. They're linked to Abraham. We know that there's a people there. There's, a, there's a, sort of a, this nation coming together, in a sense, uh, through this family. And we know that they have family. We know that they have lots of flocks because they're here watering. Uh, we know that he has lots of power. Um, uh, what can we deduct from the fact that a guy 
in a big family who has lots of power, what can we deduct from the fact that he would have his daughter fulfilling the role of a shepherdess? What are some things? I just kind of want to talk through this because it's interesting. What, what are some things we can maybe draw from the fact that, I'm not trying to lead you. I've got some thoughts too, but I, I want to know y'all's thoughts on why that guy would have his daughter fulfilling the role of a shepherdess. Yeah, it's never been noble to teach your family laziness. The, no matter, when you see a rich family and a lazy kid, you just want to choke them. And then, you know, that lazy punk's probably going to live in a nicer house than me and, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, but the point is, is that laziness is not, not a noble thing in any nation that I know of anyway. So there could be teaching your kid that, hey, hard work is important. It doesn't matter how much money this family has. Work hard. Do your chores. Be a part. Contribute. Don't sit around and just eat the food that I buy. What else? What are some other things? We... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there, I think there's both. I think here we can deduct both positive and negative things. What are some others? Maybe we'll find some. Yes. As opposed to Leah, which means cow. We'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Um, it doesn't say anything about him having sons. So we can't be sure. It's possible, but it doesn't say it. So we'd have to assume it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. A little free labor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You made a comment, maybe when you were you, you were somebody else, it's kind of like, you know, you didn't hear Yeah. Yeah. That's not right, in case anyone's wondering. That's That's backwards. That's not good. Um, yeah, I think that you can deduct positive and negative things. I think there is something in the, in, that is happening here where it doesn't matter if you're a God-fearing family or just a uh, self-serving family or whatever. There's really laziness and mooching and um, everything related to it is never really noble. Also, though, Laban is an opportunist, and there was probably a nice little fringe benefit to the free labor. And he seems to care about his daughters in some ways, but not really to the extent that a good father would care about his daughters. And so it's a mixed deal where it's like they're doing, it's kind of like the thing we saw a few weeks ago, they're doing Christian-y things, but it's not totally right. There's still some things that are backwards here.
Um, so like Rebecca watering the camels, Rachel is watering the sheep. See, see the, the parallels between the passages. And look at verse 10. As soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. This is hilarious. This should be funny. What just happened? Let me, let me walk through this. This is a stereotypical picture of the dude being impressed with the way a woman looks. So he tries to impress her by doing what? Lifting something heavy. We've seen this. Yeah. Wow, she's hot. I better pick up something heavy so she thinks I'm hot too. This is a really funny verse. Um, he tries to impress her by lifting something heavy. Have you, there's a, um, it's kind of like sucking in your gut to make your chest look real big, you know? Um, I saw, there was a video of two guys sitting at a table, and there's this one guy, and it kind of starts the video, you may have seen it, where he's, it looks like he's got a huge chest, and he's sitting at a table with his buddy, and this, this very, you know, stunning beauty walks by, and he's like this, and she gets almost all the way by, and he goes, Poof! And has to let go, and it knocks the table over because his gut is so big. I mean, it's kind of this stereotypical girl, pretty, must lift something heavy to impress her. I mean, it's really pretty, a, funny, a pretty funny verse. Um, however, there's also some truths revealed in there that are appropriate. He has kind of this immediate, um, he sees an immediate need to take care of her, which is good. So, he's kind of a bonehead guy, lift heavy thing, impress hot girl. But he also, mixed with that, is this need to take care of her. If you meet a man who seems very interested in you, but is totally uninterested in caring for you, there's a good chance that he's not Mr. Right. You meet a dude, very interested in you, and is a total loser, and can't care for you, doesn't care about caring for you, show no interest, there's a chance he's not Mr. Right. But it'll come back around here, we'll see some other things. Look at verse 7. 11, sorry. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he's 70. <laughs> Rachel probably was impressed. Yeah. Did that old guy just move that stone? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's definitely, uh, yeah, you can see God's hand in that, absolutely. It's not normal for a 70-year-old to move a big rock or a small rock. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, let's not, yeah. He's 70, and he's also a smooth 70, a smooth-skinned 70. He hasn't gotten much sun. And all of a sudden, he's moving this big rock. It's funny. Yeah, it's like, I got to do this to impress her. And she's probably got more calluses on her hands than he has on his. <laughs> Unless he cooked a really hot dish. And that's calluses from that. Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Um, verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. This is just weird. This is a weird verse. When you're reading that, you shouldn't be like, oh, that's sweet. That's weird. It looks weird. Um, why? Uh, this is, uh, it probably points to the fact that there were some cultural norms for that time that we don't understand right now. Uh, he would have been put in jail for sexual harassment at this point in our day and time. 
But I think it's safe to say uh, that Jacob, like many who have found the one, like many who have fallen in love for the first time, is overwhelmed with emotion. <laughs> Picture it. He's smooth. He's 70. He moves the big rock. I'm guaranteeing he pulled something. <laughs> Grab girl. Kiss girl. <laughs> it's just weird. It's just such a weird picture. He kisses her and he weeps aloud. Um, but it's, it, we can, at the very least, we can say that he is overwhelmed with emotion. He is in love. And, um, and, he, and he wants to, he kisses his woman. Um, and then in verse 12, uh, <laughs> and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. Um, so they make out a little and then he introduces himself, essentially. Um, she... Uh-huh. Yeah. I wonder if like this would be interesting to see where the yeah. language is yeah. to play on the word kiss. Yeah. You know, because is it possible Jacob was doing more yeah. of your like, Euro style kiss on each side of the Yeah. Misha, you know, yeah. Or, or yeah. it's good to see a family member or something like that. Yeah, it 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 could go either way. I'm not saying it yet. Um it, but it is weird either way too. Yeah. But th- I mean this is I heard one commentator actually say that um he thinks that verses eleven and twelve are inverted. To where he introduced himself, said things. There was a moment where they realized this is it, and then they kissed, which would make more sense. But it doesn't read that way. So, um, but there is a possibility on the on the kissing thing. But he kissed her, and he wept aloud, and she ran and told her dad. Not in a bad way. She was excited. This was a good thing for them, and so she runs and tells her dad, um, uh, who does not greet him with a shotgun, but uh, greets him. Uh, excitedly, verses 13 through 14. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, like he just said, his, uh, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him uh, and brought him to the house. Uh, Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Now, this is interesting. Laban runs to greet Jacob at the same manner that he ran and greeted Eleazar. It's a very similar story. And at this point, the reader and the studier of Genesis should be rightly suspicious. We should be saying, hey, this, uh, look at my eye on, on, uh, on Laban here. This looks really familiar. Run, greet him, welcome, we've been expecting you. Um, uh, Jacob told Laban all these things. You see that part in, the, in verse 13? Uh, Jacob told Laban all these things, uh, all that had happened, the same things that he had mentioned to Rebekah about the family and what's going on. Uh, question why? Why do you think Jacob told Laban all those things in detail? He wants his approval. That's important. I want to marry your daughter. I love her. I've already kissed her and wept aloud. I'd like to marry her. Yeah. Yeah. Remember what Eleazar did? That's where we first started looking at the recounting all the wonderful deeds of the Lord. Eleazar told the same long story like two or three times in a row where when we were reading it, we're saying, oh my gosh, Eleazar's all about what God's doing. Oh, wait, now nah, that's good. We should be all about what God's doing. But he, he pays specific attention to the detail and he recounts it. But what is the difference here between Eleazar and Jacob? What did Eleazar have that Jacob didn't? Stuff. What kind of stuff? Fancy stuff, some jewelry, some gifts, a bunch of camels and stuff. When Eleazar showed up, 
there was no doubt that he was the real deal. This is the difference between a guy showing up in a car, in a nice shirt, with flowers saying, I'd like to take your daughter out, and a guy showing up with no shirt on a bicycle saying, I'd like to take your daughter out. There's a difference between the two. Um, not that either of them's trustworthy. Um, as a father of two daughters, I don't think any of them were trustworthy personally. Uh, but unlike Eleazar, Jacob's broke, Jacob's alone, and Jacob's got the clothes on his back. And so what Jacob's wanting to do is he's wanting to say, um, I'm legit, I promise, I'm not some freeloader weirdo, and I want you to know this is our family, and there's marks of the family that were probably told to him by his mother that he was able to relay to, uh, to Laban to prove it. And that's why in that next verse, in verse 14, Laban says, surely you are my bone and my flesh. He's saying, I believe you. I believe that we're related. I believe that this is good, and I believe uh, the story that you've told me. Um, how long does Jacob stay with Laban, according to that verse? A month. Okay, this is month one. <clears throat> verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? We have a twofold purpose here. After a month, Jacob has the ability to prove that he's legit. He told the story, the story adds up. And then after a month of working hard for Laban, he also proves it. He, there's, there's word and there's deed there. And, and he proves, I'm legit. I'm a hard worker. I can lift heavy stuff and I'll work hard for you. And I'm, I'm not lazy. I'm not a moocher. I'm not a freeloader. And I'm, I'm going to take care of your daughter. And I want to prove by my work ethic that I can take care of your daughter. And so he has a month to do that. That's the first purpose. But it's a twofold purpose. Uh, what is revealed about Laban? month of free labor. After a month, like there's no talk up front. It's a month goes by, he's serving him, he's working hard. Um, Laban uh, likely furnishes him, you know, food so he can keep working and a place to sleep, maybe a, a change of clothes. But he thinks of compensation only after a whole month of free labor. A whole month. I mean, put yourself in the same position. I want to prove something. I want to work hard for this guy. About week three, I'm wanting to choke my future father-in-law here. I'm thinking, what a jerk. He's not even offered to, to, to pay me or anything. Um, but we see perseverance in, in what is needing to be proved here. And look at verses 16 through 17. This is where it gets interesting. So far, it's been fairly interesting. This is where it gets really interesting. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, cow. The name of the younger was Rachel, like a, a you. Uh, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Uh, there's a difference between the two. First of all, what does Jacob sub suggest as his wage in 16 and 17? Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. 17 through, 16 through 18. What does Jacob suggest as his wage? Ra Rachel. Okay. Uh, how does that make you women feel? Right. Yeah. So that's impressive. So it's okay if it's seven years. If he didn't, if he would have been like, I'll give you three more days for Rachel. And something else. I don't know. 
No, there's something noble in the fact that it says seven years, but the, the wage was, was Rachel. What is the difference between Rachel and Leah? In your own words. Okay. Patrick came here alone and leave alone. Um, yeah, to put it plainly, uh, Rachel appears to have uh, a, a more um, pleasing appearance to the male, while uh, Leah does not. Uh, what we will see is that because of her good looks, Rachel probably has an easier life. Imagine that. Imagine that. Someone with prettier looks having an easier life, maybe a more charm life than Leah. This is not necessarily a picture of fairness, but it does point to the shallowness of much of our culture. It does. The culture here is shallow in similar ways uh, to our culture, where the, uh, the pretty person has a more charmed life, like the hot girl who walks right into the ritzy restaurant or the exclusive club while all the commoners wait in line. We've seen this played out in a bunch of different movies and plays um, where there's preference given based on just appearance. Now, uh, what does Jacob know about Rachel? There's really two things. What does he know? <laughs> She's hot. That's one. We just said that. What's the other one? She can herd sheep. So maybe three things. She, she, yeah, but that's an assumption. He can lift heavy things. She's not a man. That's very good, Jeff. She is not a man. She's not a what else? Canaanite. Yeah, that's really all he needs to know. She's hot. She's not a Canaanite. I got what I need. That's pretty much it fulfilled his credentials that he was looking for. This is all he needs. And look at verse uh, 19, actually. This is where it gets kind of crazy, too. Or, or Sorry, look at 18. Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter. Well, what did he say? He what? He loved her? Seriously, how long have they known each other? Yeah, not, not so long. He stayed with him a month. They had their first kiss. We don't know what happened from there. Probably not much. He was working hard. Jacob loved Rachel. He loved her. Loved her. Love, love, love. I think it's good to go back for a minute and take a few, uh, look at a few points that we picked up in our Isaac and Rebecca study. Remember the Isaac and Rebecca? Who was here for the Isaac and Rebecca study? All four or five. Okay, fantastic. This is going to be weird. Um, the Isaac and Rebecca study. Robbie Zacharias, uh, he wrote a book called I, Isaac, Take Thee, Rebecca. And it kind of looked at some of the nuances here that are very unfamiliar to us. Things like dowry and bride price and weird things and arranged marriage and all those things that are um, fairly weird to us. And he makes this observation in his book. He says, love. Jacob loved Rachel. He says, love is an enormous commitment uh, that will test you at some of your most vulnerable areas of spirituality, lust, greed, pride. It demands of you the quality of commitment that Jesus uses in his analogy of his relationship to us. Husbands, how are you called to love your wives? Christ loves the church, and wives submit to your husband. Like church submits to Christ, there's mutual respect there. Ephesians 5, we looked at that in depth during that study. And he makes this 
really, really un-American statement. Love is as much a question of the will as it is the emotion. And if you will to love somebody, you can. Why is that not very poetic? Why do we not have a lot of songs that say, I willed to love you so I could? <laughs> Sounds like duty. Did you mean that? Did I double meaning? That was very... <laughs> It sounds like duty. <laughs> yeah? It's not very natural. Uh-huh. It sounds like work, not a happy butterfly feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, 20 years into marriage, you don't normally see greeting cards you know, at the store, like, I willed to love you this long, I'll will to love you another 20 years. It's, it's just not so, it doesn't have a ring to it that, that says, wow. Um, but, Yeah, when it's used here and it's when, when it's used previous with uh, Isaac and Rebecca, the, the use of the word is, um, it indicates that it's something that happens and, and, and is happening and it, and it has movement to it. It's not just something like, bam, I saw her, I loved her. And it's, and it's an event. It's action here and there's movement here. Um, Titus 2, go ahead and turn there. Oh, man. Titus 2. Three through four. I will read this and end in prayer and run out. Titus 2. I was in a foster adopt class this last um, week. And the lady teaching it um, was quoting from James about taking care of orphans, and she was using Scripture to encourage us to do what it says. And she followed it up by, I love that piece of Scripture. Hate Titus 2, but love that piece of Scripture, and just kept moving. And it was pretty funny. Uh, she's, a, she's a character. But it says in Titus 2, verses 3 through 4, this. We'll start in verse 3. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderer or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. And so one of the questions that we came up with in that last study where we were looking at this love where it's like, y'all don't even know each other, is that um, have you ever considered that within the community of believers you could be trained to love your husbands, that you can be trained to love your children. If you can be trained to do it, what does that indicate? Yeah, there's something there that says, it's not just this overwhelming feeling that I can't explain. It's this, I I, want to be obedient to this. I want to learn this. I want to do this right. And when there's a perseverance there that's biblically birthed, um, it is good. And, and it will provide for many more happy years rather than just the fleeting feelings that are there at the beginning usually. It doesn't just come naturally. You can be trained so it doesn't just come naturally. You need to be trained within the community of believers to be able to do that. It doesn't just come naturally. The point 
we really need to consider the biblical definition of love before we write off Jacob's love for Rachel as an impossibility. I believe he loved her there. I don't believe it was perfect. I don't believe that any love is really perfect between a man and a woman, but it's supposed to rightly reflect um, the character of God and the love that exists between Christ and the church. I was reading something this week that said that it takes the, the entire church to provide a vague imitation of who God is. It takes all of us to provide a vague picture of who God is. And it talks about where we are uh, somewhat muddled in, in that representation, but faint in, 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 in the reality there. There's, there's a truth there that's really beautiful. It's not perfect when it's just us, but it's perfect. So we can't just write it off. So turn back to Genesis 29. Uh, Jacob says in, in 18, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. What does Jacob show unwilling to serve for seven years? Consistency? Steadfastness? Commitment, perseverance, endurance, patience. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, uh, very significant price there. Now, the bride price that we speak of does not invalidate the worth of the woman. Um, it's supposed to validate it. It seems foreign to us because we don't do that today. But the point is, is to say that, I mean, when he says, I will work for seven years, I love her, and I'll be here for seven years. I'm, I'm 70, and I'll work for seven years. The point is to validate her worth, not invalidate it. Uh, this year, Lindsay and I have been married seven years in June. I was thinking about all that we've been through, all that we've learned, we've moved to a new and unknown town. We have a whole new ministry that didn't exist from before we were married. Two children lived in three different places, and we have many new friends. I cannot imagine having been her dad's servant this whole time. This is seven years this year. I cannot imagine having been her dad's servant the whole time and just now getting married this year. That's what we're talking about here. It's not a small thing. Um, love as an act of the will is a foreign concept to us, but biblically, we find that it doesn't take the romance out of it. It's not supposed to take the romance out of it. Um, rather, like true faith proven by good works, true love finds proof and perseverance and sacrifice and loving even if someone's being unlovable. The love Christ has for his bride should teach us much about love rather than just an ooey-gooey showing of emotions that I can't explain, the love we're supposed to have. Remember that trip study that we did in, in the marriage series? Our, our love is to be a cruciform love, meaning it, it looks like Jesus. It takes the form of Christ, cruciform love. It doesn't take the romance out of it. Next week, we will look at what takes the romance out of it. Waking up with the wrong sister, specifically. Um, so we'll study that next week. Should be interesting. Um, but uh, that will take the romance out of it, but the other will not. Um, do you all have any questions or thoughts before we end? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
That really is not going to next week. Yeah. 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 Yeah, there's an excitement that really has to be seen here. I mean, who offered up seven years? Jacob did. Oh, she is hot. I'll serve you seven years. Boldly. And get to work. He's already worked a month for free. That's nothing. And then we see next week, it seemed like only a few days to him. So we'll talk more about that. Any other thoughts or questions on it? Cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This old man just picked up this stone. He was high on something. Um, yeah, this, uh, I, I don't know how old Rachel is here. Um, I haven't been able to find that in any of my notes. No one included it. Um, I would love to know, though. It, I think that'd be interesting. Um, I don't know how much it would prove or say or what we'd learn from it, but it may provide a better laugh. Um, but uh, it, it, it certainly must have been interesting when, when um, her dad came back and said, here's the deal we came to. For seven years, he's going to serve me, and then you will be his wife. I mean, I, I'd imagine she's probably thinking, he's pretty old. Do, are we sure he's going to make it another 70 years? So, I mean, there's a lot of, this is just a weird chapter, that, and it gets weirder. I was reading ahead in Genesis again this week, and some stuff's going to be hard to teach through because it's so stinking weird and awkward. Um, but it's God's people. And the more we learn, the more we understand, and the more we grow in our knowledge of Him and are able to put His glory on this place. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for, uh, uh, for this uh, time tonight. And uh, I pray that we would take from this what You would have us take from it. At the very least, I think we, we are quickened to keep our eyes on You, to know that You're always working, You're always doing things, to know that to be obedient to You will take sacrifice, it will take perseverance, uh, to know that it's not enough to just say, oh yeah, I'll do this or I'll do that, but to, to actually be a people of action, leaning forward, proving our faith by good works done in faith for your glory. I pray that we would see love rightly from our study tonight, that we would see it as not just a gushy, emotional uh, thing I can't explain, but uh, cruciform love, uh, taking the, the form of a servant as, as Jacob does tonight and as Christ has done, considering others as more significant than ourselves, caring about the needs of others like watering their sheep, and not just about our own needs. Lord, you've shown us a lot tonight, and I pray that we wouldn't lose sight of it. Lord, you're very good, and I'm so thankful that you've given us this record of the way that you've been uh, working in the lives of your people uh, from the beginning of time. And I pray that we'd really cherish it and, and see these times where we get to gather and talk through it and learn as, as really valuable times. Uh, Lord, we don't value uh, just knowledge. Lord, you are our treasure. You are our treasure, and we love you. And we, uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.